Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Minds of Media. My name is Blake Panashevitz, and today's guest is a comedian, actor, host, Twitch streamer, and if he isn't considered an Instagram model, he should be. Please let me introduce <laughs> William Nuff. Welcome hey, to the what's show. up? How are we doing, bud? Good to be here. Thanks for Good. having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have you on the show, especially I've stopped doing these for a while and you were the first guest actually for like my resurgence because I did like a bunch of them in a row and then I stopped. So I like I was that. Really... I like resurgence is an underused word. It, it's God, a that's word. a good word. Yeah, it's a great word. So I don't I don't know if you are really under like know what you're getting into, um, but I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions, some that I think are going to be really cool. Some hopefully no one has asked you before, because that's always my goal when I do interviews is to not make them boring. Um, so I'm going to start it off really easy. One of the things I uh, noticed about you when I looked into you, Will, is that you're a yeah. huge fan of Cowboy Bebop, which I think is fairly obvious by your uh, Twitch page. But yeah, more importantly, more importantly than that, I saw an old picture of you wearing an eye patch, and you look like Snake Plissken from either Escape yes. from L.A. or Escape from New York. So I guess the first question is, which movie did you like better, Escape from L.A. or Escape from New York, and why? Man, that's okay. So I would say that just fundamentally, uh, Escape from New York is a better film, right? Like, I think that uh, Escape from L.A. is very campy, but... I enjoy Escape from L.A. more because I live in L.A. Mm -hmm. and I'm a huge Bruce Campbell fan. So when Bruce shows up as the uh, Surgeon General of Beverly Hills, that I always go. Oh! Um, so, I mean, I, I love both films. I, Snake is just a, a perfect character. Both the Escape films are, are, are wonderfully, wonderfully campy. Yeah, um, and I, that that's oh. that surfing scene in the L.A. one is just mwah. Uh, yeah. but yeah, I, I love me a good escape movie. They're both they're both tremendous. Yeah, I liked I, at first I was like, I wonder if he was going with like Metal Gear Solid. I was like, no, nah, I think it's Escape from L.A. Escape from L.A. Yeah. is my personal favorite out of the two. I think I liked Escape from L.A. better. Escape from New York's good, but Escape from L.A. is definitely uh, you, you know, what's funny. It just you takes everything to 10. I know yeah. it does. Yeah. You mentioned Bruce Campbell. I sure. love Bruce Campbell too. So he's uh, he's hard not to love. He's kind of like uh, the best like uh, insider actor. Like you know, what I mean, I feel like he never really got his shine for being yeah. as good as he is. But if you're a fan of like Evil Dead and Army of Darkness and stuff like that, you're. I mean, you're you're all my a, a lot of my sub alerts uh, are like so like my sub alert and my follow alert are actually clips from Army of Darkness. Yeah, so that's actually Best what I use. As my boomstick, yep. I checked it out. I came yep. in. I saw. So I I love Bruce Campbell. I love Army of Dark. It's one of my favorite movies. So it's really I just oh, I'm so excited for this interview. So. Um, yeah. I don't know. If, uh, like, let's just start. We're gonna start early and kind of work our way through because I actually don't know a ton about you. Um, and sure. Who you are? Um, I see a lot of you on the internet, and I think that that is you as a person. But you, like, it's never really. You're never really sure with the internet, right? Like, anyone yeah. could be anyone. People play characters because it's a lot of times it's safer to play characters. I don't this think is, you're playing yeah, a this, character. Uh, this is an um, improv character I've been locked into yeah. for a long time. Yeah. It would be intense it would be intense so there's a lot of things to talk about so were you sure. born and raised in la no uh i was uh born in new york i was i was born in manhattan actually um and i yeah i split time between manhattan and um uh long island it was like the first seven years of my life and then princeton new jersey 
So uh, still in the, in the Manhattan area, basically. Um, My dad was still commuting to the city at the time. uh, And so was my mother. She worked out of uh, JFK and LaGuardia. Um, And so, yeah, uh, I I spent a lot of my time in the city growing up. Uh, And then when I, when I graduated with my master's degree uh, in film, I decided that LA was the place that I had to be um, just because that's where that industry was. Okay. I mean, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. So what did your parents do growing up? You mentioned your dad traveled a lot for work and, mm. um, yeah. So, at, uh, uh, JFK. Yeah. My mom was a, a, a flight attendant. Um, and she is, she's always just kind of been, a uh, a, a wanderer, a gypsy. She likes to travel. So that was perfect for her. She would kind of fly in and out of the country all the time. She was an international flight attendant. And then my father, he's a guy who's, who's lived so many lives. He's, he's much, much older. He just turned 90. Um, but he, are you serious? Uh, yeah, very serious. Deadly serious. Uh, Wait, like, God damn. Wow. Like the big nine. Oh yeah. Um, Wait, can, can I ask how old you are? Or is this one of those like, yeah, I'm 30. Uh, okay. I'm 30. We're, we're about the same age then. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're 30. I'm 28. I'll be 29 in January. Good gosh, you look young, man. I know. I don't age at all. It's awful, actually. Like when you go when you're <laughs> when you're like 26, 27, and you take a girl to a movie theater and you have to tell her to break her ID because you're gonna get carded, <laughs> and she's yeah. like, "What?" And then you do. Um, it's it's a really awkward experience. But yeah, I'm, I'm almost 30, so. That's hilarious, man. Well, yeah. Uh, so my dad's much older. Uh, hold on a second, Modi. Thank you so much for the raid, brother. Uh, much love to you, dude. Hope you're doing well. Um, but yeah, uh, my dad's much older. Uh, I'm 30. Uh, but yeah, my, my dad growing up, like he, he's one of those guys who I think it's kind of like what almost pushed me into, into comedy and, and acting and stuff is that like, he was so good at everything he did that I, I kind of had like this mentality where I'm like, I'm not going to fucking do anything as good as this dude. So, um, he was, uh, so we'll just do it really quick. He, his first job was he worked on an oil refinery. My grandfather, uh, owned and operated oil refineries in New Jersey, uh, for mobile gas. Uh, from there he, uh, went and did venture cap for Norman Rockefeller. Um, yeah, which, which at the time was a pretty cool and exciting job in New York. Uh, so after his time working for Norman, uh, well, during his time working for Norman, he found out that this other guy was stealing all of his work. He fudged a report and basically wrote it in gibberish. The guy stole it. The guy got in trouble. So then he sent him to work in Columbia essentially. And so he was doing venture cap for, for Norman Rockefeller in Columbia. Uh, he did that for a number of years, uh, set up like, uh, uh, the largest poultry farm in the world at one point. Jesus uh, after Christ. that, he started an airline called Seaboard World, um, owned the airline for a while, eventually sold that to a company called Tiger Air. Those companies merged to become FedEx. Uh, after that, he, uh, he, became, he was a lawyer uh, and he worked as a lawyer in New York City for a while. And now he's, a, now he's an author. Now he writes um, romantic fiction about World War II. Wow. So yeah, he's, he's one of those type of guys. So that's like why I was like, I, what the fuck am I going to do? I better be funny because my dad's dude. I just remember at 60 years old, my dad used to come and give talks about finance to my high school. And I just remember even at 60, like all the girls in my class were like, I want to fuck your dad. And it was so, it was so punishing to my psyche. Oh God. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine. Holy yeah, it was shit. a lot. 
Yeah, it was that's a lot. incredible though. I mean, like to have someone in your life who had like just this, so much great potential that must have at least meant that oh hey maybe like at least some of this rubbed off on me and I could be great. Did you have like that type of thing, or did you have the no, opposite where like I'm fucked? No, There's no way I'll ever be as good. I I I, I kind of had the opposite, and and the other thing was I had two step brothers that kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> had not done well, well we'll put it that way uh despite having all the same advantages and gifts they kind of uh did not do as well so i think because i was kind of like an accident kid like a half court shot kid mm-hmm. um i don't think the expectations were high let me put it that way i don't think the expectations were high for me at all uh, and i wasn't really good at school so i, I think there were some bare bare minimum expectations for, for old Will Neff for a long time. Okay. Um, so that, that brings me to another question. You mentioned that you have step siblings. Were your parents separated sure. or? No, 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 no. So my, my step siblings are from my father's first marriage. Okay. Um, he had them with a Colombian woman uh, who he eventually got divorced from and ended up keeping the kids. And my mother, my biological mother uh, raised them. Uh, but she was much younger than yeah. my dad. She was like 30 years younger than my dad, which made her only about uh, eight to 10 years older than her kids, which was really weird. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but then they had me years and years and years later. So my stepbrothers are like 30 years older than I am. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I can understand that age difference being a little bit weird because like my dad right yeah. now, because he just got divorced like three years ago. He's dating someone who's like literally one year younger than me. And I'm like, this is too weird. Like, he's yeah, yeah, too yeah, fucking yeah, weird. it's like, it's super it's super strange. And it becomes kind of a good meme where like my dad once upon a time got me a shirt that said uh, my wife hasn't been born yet. And I, he thought that was hilarious. And I was like. It's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. Oh my god! So okay, if this question is too personal, I understand. Um, it no, sounds no. like your dad, at the very least, came from money, and a lot of people who come from money tend to be a lot more conservative. Um, um, was your family very conservative? So my dad didn't necessarily come from money. Or ha- I, I think like came like came like worked into money. I mean, like had- yeah, that's what I would say. He was more. I guess at the time in nouveau riche, um, he kind of came from like a blue collar, like when he was working at that oil refinery, he was actually working in like the, like the, the sewer part of it was actually his job is like, he would work in the actual like pipes and shit. Um, but no, I, it's interesting. Uh, I, I never, my dad was more conservative just in the sense that like he grew up in like the depression era. He's just older. Uh, but he never had like a like old stodgy mentality. Uh, my dad actually had like one of the first high school scholarships for Afri- or people of color, sorry, yeah. in the country. So he was he was much more progressive. And my mom is like a total hippie. So I, I never felt like I was growing up in a conservative household. I mean, certainly now that they're older, I see more conservative tendencies out of them. Um, but growing up in that household, I never felt like I was growing up in like a, like a conservative household. Uh, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that does. Um, you mentioned that you weren't very good at school. What was school like for you kind of growing up? Like, were you the class clown? Cause that's what I imagine. Miserable. Really? Well, I, I, well, I was, I was, a, I was a kid with like ADHD. Right. And, and I was at the time 
when they really didn't know what to do with those kids, I mean, they still kind of don't, right? Yeah. We don't fit into a classroom environment. But uh, I was one of the first uh, kids on Adderall, actually. At the age of like 11, uh, I was in like the clinical testing for oh, wow. uh, time release Adderall, not the original Adderall, but like the time release yeah. so they could like keep kids piped up all day without multiple servings. So, uh, yeah, I, I, would, I took Adderall really early, like 11. I was on Adderall heavy and, uh, it's, it's weird to be on like an amphetamine like that when you're so young and for so long. Um, I still remember going into this guy named Dr. Ekins and like telling him my progress, but Adderall was a weird experience, man, because I I think like biologically it, it screwed me up a lot. Um, but, but aside from that, when you're an ADHD kid, like sitting in a classroom and just listening is like the equivalent of a nightmare, right? Like you, you're just like, you just want to do anything to, to move or do something or keep yourself busy. So I think like that, just that traditional classroom structure it, it is so brutal for someone who just doesn't fit into it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if I, if, if there were some alternative, like some kind of Socratic learning method where I could have been more engaged and stand up and move around, I'm sure school would have been great. But just the way that school is structured right now, kids with learning disabilities, you just, you have no hope, right? Like it, school is so geared to kids who can sit quietly and listen and learn from a textbook and for a, for for a kid that has uh, um, ADHD and dyslexia, it was just like, oh my god, what am I doing here? You know, what I mean, I can't even read good. What am I? What am I doing? So yeah, it was just it was just a it was a harrowing experience. Uh, and, and you know, when you're not good at school, your teachers tend to not like you. I mean, I had some tremendous teachers who saw potential and really really went to bat for me. But most of the time, it was just teachers like, oh, fuck this kid. He just yeah. sucks. And I get that. When your job is to wrangle children, the harder the kid is to wrangle, the more you're like, okay, fuck this kid. So that was kind of my experience with school. So uh, you, you mentioned something there, and this is something I've always kind of wondered about. You mentioned, uh, like, I know ADHD is technically considered a learning disability. Do you think that's actually sure. a learning disability, or do you think it's just a flaw in the oh. school system? That they haven't figured out a way to actually like teach. I I I'm a huge. Uh, I criticize public schools a lot. Um, yeah. So and I think that public schools are generally speaking very poor. So I like for me, it wouldn't be that it's the the kid with right. ADHD's problem that he's ADHD. It's the fact that the school right. isn't set up or doesn't um, have the funding to deal with ADHD. So I think a lot of teachers will tell you right now in this age of like. I guess we'll call it political correctness, but that's such like a bad term for it. That's such like an alt writers to like, we're, we're, we're living in an age of political correctness. But um, a lot of teachers will tell you right now that like, for lack of a better term, they're handcuffed, right? They're not allowed to like physically touch the kids in any way or give oh, them yeah. like any kind of like physical feedback loop. Their ability to rear them or talk to them or be personal with them in any way is like really hindered. And they're kind of locked into these like learning, like, like these, these education structures that are very, very rigid. Um, you know, and I think that's really tough. And so, like, I know as a kid, I would have probably uh, reacted very well to like a physical, like a feedback loop, like someone putting a hand on my back and being like, Hey, will chill the fuck out. Um, and be because of like people fucking kids, 
uh, you're not allowed to do that stuff. Right. Um, and so, uh, it, 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 it sucks because they're totally throttled. And I think the traditional learning method does work for some kids, but it just doesn't work for all kids. Right. And so I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if there will eventually be some kind of totally alternative school structure for, for, for kids with, with learning disabilities. I, I do think that ADHD is a learning disability because it's basically like you, you have to learn on your own time, right? Unless yeah. you're interested in something, you cannot learn it. And that's what I've found in my life is like, I have, I have a tremendous IQ when it comes to the things I care about, film, music, uh, whatever, I, I can rattle off facts and figures for you all day, but I could, I can hardly list the months of the year, right? If, if I, if I don't have an interest in it, it's not going in my skull. So, I mean, it, 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 that's what you end up with is people with ADHD oftentimes tend to have these like very specialized IQ sets, which make them tremendously creative but it hinders them in other aspects like your ability to be organized or your ability to do route tasks or, or memorize like basic things that will probably help you on a standardized test. Yeah, I feel that. Um, that brings me to another interesting question. I'm going to jump forward a little bit. Sure. I know that you had talked about, uh, there's a video out there of you talking about how when you worked with BuzzFeed and you did that sure. video in ADHD that you felt like, I, I shouldn't have done this. Um, is essentially kind of what you said, or you felt like you weren't, uh, being yeah, do you still it, feel that way? Well, okay. So I think there's a version of the ADHD video that I would have been proud of, yeah. but I think part of what was so vexing about the video at the time is all of my like bosses were looking at their employees and they were essentially telling them like, pimp your identity. Like, oh, you're a redhead? Make a yeah. hundred things all redheads do. Oh, you're a black woman? Make 10 things that all yeah. black women do. And aside from that being extremely problematic, especially when you talk about like uh, POC, people of color identities, where they yeah. were like, oh, tell me 10 things that all Filipinos do. Yeah, and like it's generalizing like, to an extreme. What the fuck, dude? No, no, no Filipino has like, does like, you can't guarantee that any Filipino does any one thing. The idea that like, just because you are X, you are guaranteed to do Y was tremendously frustrating. And I think that they, they didn't understand that. And they were so willing to pimp identities because they hadn't been called on it yet. And like, there's kind of this milestone moment and you can, or, or, or bellwether moment, you can go and look at it actually. Uh, so I'll, this, this all leads into this. They, they, they got away with this for a long time, right? They got away with this for like the better part of a year. And it were, it was one of their more successful properties where these just pimped identities, like yeah. uh, Filipino family moments we can all relate to and shit like that until they did a video that was like, I think it was called like 10 things all black people do. You can look it up, but it was really interesting because Buzzfeed had really um, benefited tremendously from being early adapters of like, uh, of like BLM and a lot of like progressive movements, yeah. but they were doing it in a totally performative way. 
And then they make this video, like, I think it's like 20 things all black people do. And the thing was our checks and balances for making these videos was like one black person. And if they were like, yeah, that's cool. The video would get made. So they got this like sign off from one black person. The video was tremendously offensive. It basically talked about like black people hoarding shoes and stuff like that. And so black Twitter was like, wait a minute, what the fuck? This is bullshit. And then that's like when Buzzfeed and kind of the progressive movement had this splinter where the progressive movement realized like, oh, Buzzfeed is, they don't give a fuck. They're just making these videos to get views. Anyway, I was still in the period of when this was like very vogue. And they were like pushing me like, hey, make a freckle video. And I was like, what? And they're like, hey, make a ginger video. And I'm like, I'm not even that fucking ginger, dude. Like most people can't even, anyway, it came down to like, you know what I'm comfortable making? I'm comfortable making an ADHD video. I feel like I have some good insight on how this was. So I want to make the video what it's like being a, a, a dude with ADHD. They immediately retort, a, a, a man with ADHD, can't you just do a person with ADHD? And I was like, no, I have no idea what it's like to be a woman with ADHD. I have no fucking idea what it, just do it anyway. Do person with ADHD. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I had some beats that I thought were comedic and the company thought were like, oh, like beyond the pale. And the one, the one beat that I talk about that is like this kind of really pivotal moment in my career is I had a beat where, so it's all like the detriments of having ADHD, yeah. right? Like I, I, I can't listen to someone's conversation when there's a TV in a restaurant. Anybody with ADHD knows if you go to a restaurant with TVs in the restaurant, you just fucking blew the conversation. You're not talking to anybody because you're just like, you, you keep like zoning out, yeah. right? Okay. So I have a bunch of beats like this. And the beat that I have is low cut tops. And it's my friend uh, at the time. Her name's Peyton. She's wearing this low cut top. And the, and the beat is... Hassan, who's playing the ADHD yeah. guy, is literally looking at the sky because he doesn't want to look at her breasts, right? It's not him just grilling her tits. It's him being conscientious and doing his best not to be distracted by yeah. her low-cut top. BuzzFeed thought this was the most sexist thing that's ever been done they're so offended, blah, blah, blah. They write me this. They write me one of these emails where it's like, we need to talk. Like, we like, blah, 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 blah. And so I have to go through this like whole brow beating where they're like, this beat is horrible. And I was like, guys, the fact that you're not admitting that some men are distracted by low cut tops is a fucking farce. Like we're yeah. all adults. And then the thing I added is like, Guys, I have been naked, not just, not just scantily clad, but straight up naked in six of your million plus view videos. So you have no problem marching my wrench in front of a camera to exploit me to make, the, to, to make your bottom line. But the fact that I even mentioned that women have tits is like beyond the pale. Like, whoa, dude. And this was so indicative of them trying to like profit off of a progressive movement. 
And it's like, listen, I don't want to sound like squad W right now because I don't believe in, in that shit. I don't believe in that mentality. Yeah. That's not, that's not my, but I'm telling you at Buzzfeed, there was certainly a double standard. And so this video turned into a fight and then I gave them an edit and then they were like, oh, can't we have a beat where you feel good about having HD where like having ADHD is cool. And I was like, no motherfucker. I hate having HD. I would do, I would suck any dick to get out of this predicament. I can't read books, dude. I get bored. I, I, school was a nightmare for me. Like, what are we talking? You want me to, you want me to make people feel good about having something that is like awful. And they're like, yes. And so I had to add this last beat where I was like, but you're never bored, but you're always bored when you have ADHD. That's the point. You're perpetually bored and that's why you can't focus on anything. So the whole video turned into this farce. I had no fucking control. And like, to be honest, that beat is, is like part of what ended up, getting me fired from the company because they, they kind of had this mentality that I was like, uh, you know, oh, oh, bro, dude, you only cares about boobs. He has no emotional depth. Even though I was just trying to like tell my personal truth and, and it was just, it, dude, it was just so, it was vexing and I felt used and yeah. weird and yeah, that's, I mean, that's the take on that. Okay. Okay. I have lots of questions, but I want to jump back a minute because you mentioned sure. uh, with your ADHD, which maybe jumping around a lot might actually be good for you. It's something I yeah, do yeah, a lot. right, right, right. Hell um, yeah. So, because um, I actually have very mild ADHD. That's like there was a lot of things in that video. I was like, oh yeah, I know what that's like. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. My dad is way worse though. Thank. I'm just very grateful that mine is manageable because I know some people's it's just totally not manageable yeah, at all without just, medication. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, you mentioned that you can rattle off the things that you care about, film, sure. music. Has that something you've always been really passionate about? Is that something like from a kid you were like, this is this is the this is my dream. I want to become an actor when I'm older. Is that Will Neff <laughs> so, as a child? Uh, I mean, I guess you could say my my childhood interest in film came from the fact that uh, I used to spend every summer on this island in the middle of Lake Michigan called Beaver Island, population okay. three hundred. I'm no one there. Oh, you are. So you know, do you know Mackinac Island? I do know Mackinac. I'm actually from it's, the UP, so I actually it's like oh, Mackinac Island's like six. So I'm what's like, up, Uper? How you doing, fuck, dude? Fuck you. <laughs> You've been to Escanaba recently, there, my, bud. My um, girlfriend. My girlfriend is near from near Escanaba. Yeah, dude, absolutely. Uh, um, so like you know, it's it's like pretty isolated. If you've yes. ever heard of Beaver Island, it's population 300. I was a kid and I didn't know anyone there. So essentially every one of my summers was like Danny in the Overlook Hotel from The Shining, right? Like okay, yeah, yeah. just by myself, tricycle in a big house. Um, but like, that's like when my, my era of just watching TV started, right? Because I had no one there. <laughs> I, I had no one to play with. I was an only child at this point. And so a lot of my time was just spent in front of almost like Jim Carrey and the cable guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would just like totally immerse myself uh, in these stories and in these characters. And it became a big part of my day to day. And I think that was like when I became very interested in like telling stories in terms of like film and television becoming a career. I can tell you the exact moment. And it's funny. I've actually had this conversation with this person there was a girl in my high school. I went to a boarding school named Vanessa and she was the most gorgeous. She is still the most gorgeous woman I've ever seen. 
Um, but she was like the queen of the school. And I was like this, I had like terrible acne. I was still parting my hair down the middle and wearing like Hawaiian shirts. It was awful, but she loved film and she was a senior and I was a little pimply gross freshman. And I knew she was taking this film course. So I weaseled my way into this same film course uh, with this teacher named Judith Campman, who, I mean, totally saved my life. But I got into this class because I wanted to be near Vanessa Black. And then Judith Campman found me as a, a total degenerate, just trying to be close to an attractive woman. And she sat me down. She's like, you're amazing at this. Like, I, I know you probably don't understand this because I think you're just here to, <laughs> to try and flirt with Vanessa Black. Oh, sorry, I said her name. Um, but like, uh, you, you should really pursue this. And I was like, uh, wow, okay. So Judith and I continued this relationship. I made film with her for a long time. And then when I graduated high school, she sent me to Chicago uh, to work at a at an improv place called the Second, Second City. Second City. So I was 18 years old. I was living by myself in Chicago in Wrigleyville, and I was working and performing at the Second City because Judith had worked on both Saturday Night Live and she had worked uh, at Second City. She also was like really good friends with Billy Crystal. She's an analyze Damn. this and and analyze that. She she's an amazingly talented uh, uh, a comedic mind. So I was 18, living and working in uh, Chicago by myself in the world's tiniest, crappiest apartment. I would walk to Second City every day. I would do classes from like 9 a.m. till like 10 p.m. every day. And then I would work the box office. And then on weekends, I would perform in Donnie's Skybox and on the second stage. So literally for like five, four months of my life, all I did was improv, just improv, 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 improv. And that's like, that's like when it really hit that I could do this because I was this 18 year old kid living on my own. And, you know, my teachers would be like, I was better than like the 30 year olds. You know what I mean? I was better than the people who had been doing it their whole life. And I got in with some amazing people there, a group called the Mad Hientists. I don't know if they even still exist, but uh, the managers at Donnie's Skybox, they kind of took me in and, and like, I was this oddity, right? I was this 18 year old kid who like loved Chris Farley, any bit of Chris Farley curios I could get, I would be like, oh, tell me Chris Farley stories. Um, and so I had this great time. And then, the, the, well, this is, this is great. I can tell you this behind the scenes story. So, uh, the, the woman that was like operating second city at that point was like, she was operating it largely as almost like a, um, an honorary position. She had essentially retired, but she yeah. sat in her office at second city and kind of like stamp shit. And she had been there since like the inception of it. Anyway, on my last day, she gave me a um, signed copy of the Chris Farley story from his brother, Kevin Farley. And she's like, I want you to have this. This is something wow. I have. And I want to tell you a story. And I was like, yes. So she told me the story about Chris Farley. And she basically said when he and Tim Meadows were both performing at second city, I believe it was Tim Meadows. I can't remember anymore. Um, Chris Farley loved to get people to break, right? That was his entire 
his 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 pursuit in life was to get his his stage mates to break. And I I don't know if I'm re- misremembering this, but I'm almost positive it was Tim Meadows. He could not get him to could not get Tim Meadows to break on stage. So he like this became this all uh consuming pursuit. Like I have to get Tim Meadows to break character. I have to get Tim Meadows to break character. So this went on and on and on until one day Tim Meadows was doing a sketch and there's wings on the main stage at second city. So if you're watching the state, so like here, you see my camera right now, this is what you can see on, on second city. And then the wings are totally off. Like no matter where you sit in that audience, you can't see what's going on. Okay. So Chris Farley is in one of those wings and he makes eye contact with, I think Tim Meadows and he just rips his pants off. So he's fully naked. His penis is out and he just starts, he just starts doing this as hard as he can. And he won't stop, dude. He does it for like apparently a solid, like three minutes. And he's just flailing his cock as hard as he can until Tim Meadows just absolutely like totally loses control and can't finish the sketch, can't do the character. And they literally just have to pull court curtain and go lights out. And the audience is like, what the fuck (laughs) just happened? But like that, that, that was like her gift to me was this like unknown kind of behind the scenes story about Chris Farley, because I had like, I had purposed my life about becoming a successor to this man and and I loved the idea that Chris was this guy who would do anything to make people laugh. At that point in my life, I was really lost. I had a lot of depression. I had a lot of kind of misgivings about what I was going to do with my life. But this concept that he, this guy would literally set himself on fire to make those people around him more at ease and make them happy and make them comfortable with kind of just the, 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 the almost... Uh, cryptic and and morbid nature of of life and reality he would do anything to distract from that i love that and i i totally co-op that and that's something i still you know carry with me today i mean that's an do you still have the book Uh, i do i do it's it's in my it's in my parents home in north carolina Okay, like safely, like packaged yeah. and yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's funny though. I met Kevin Farley out here in Los Angeles at a place called Rock and Riley's, mm-hmm. um, like four years ago. And it's really funny because he was sitting with David Spade. They were watching football together, and I came up to the table and I was like, "Hey!" And and David Spade thought I was like approaching him for an autograph, and he was like, "Hi, how you do?" You know, and I was like. Oh, I'm, I'm actually not here to talk to you. I'm here to talk to you. And I was, and I like gave him a little spiel and it was, it was really, it was really fun. They were, they're both tremendously nice guys. Nice. That's, yeah. that is, a, that, those are like amazing stories. Cause like, I never really under, like I knew you had done some acting and we're going to get into that a little bit sure. um, and stuff like that a little bit later on. But I, I wasn't really sure how close to like the Hollywood world, Hollywood world you were, but like the second city thing I had seen. Mm-hmm. It must have been incredible to like incredible, but also I've heard it's incredible, but also a lot of times you're really broke because it's Chicago. Uh, so it's like incredible oh, yeah. that you get to do this, but you're also like poor as fuck the entire oh, time. Dude, and I was 18, man. I was, I, I was, I was, I was getting paid to do like the box office at Second City. So I would literally go to classes in the morning. I would do like office work around second city all day. And then I would get paid to do box office. So literally selling and ripping tickets. So that's like what I lived off of. 
I, I literally lived in the dinkiest apartment in Wrigleyville. The, like the smallest, like my bed was in the kitchen and then there was just a bathroom and a card table, nothing there. And I would walk to and from Second City every day. Chicago's so, yeah, cold I, too. Chicago is yes. really cold. That is true. That is true. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it was, it, I, you know, at 18, you don't even really realize you're living a Spartan lifestyle. Cause that's, you're like, I'm on my own. The world is wide. That's true. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what did you decide to do uh, for college? Cause I know you went to Blair Academy, but like, what, what was your undergrad? Oh man. So my college decision was literally so impromptu. I, I, my, okay. So my college advisor was also my tennis coach. And he didn't give a fuck really about like, he was a good guy, but he didn't really give a fuck about my college shit because I was the captain of the tennis team and we were doing all right. And I was like, so grilled in. And I was also like, I I had so many extracurriculars and I just like, whenever he'd be like, Hey, well, you know, college, I'd kind of be like, (laughs) fuck you. Uh, So we got to the point where like, we were literally at, um, uh, uh, admission deadlines, like application deadlines. And I hadn't applied anywhere. And he brought me into his office and he gave me the college, like a list of every college you can like in the book. I forget what the guide is called. And he was like, you have to apply somewhere before you leave my office today, just apply anywhere. And I was like, Oh, so at the time, I was considering going to Cornell because I was a really good squash player. I was a very good squash player. And apparently I could have played squash there. And my dad was alum and he was pulling strings. And my, my mother behind the closed doors was like, do not go to Cornell. I do not want you to be an Ivy leaguer. You'll turn into a pretentious prick. And I was like, all right, okay. I guess I won't, I guess I won't do that. Um, so after that, I, I literally just kind of opened this book and I remember they rated schools based on different categories, right? They had, they had academics, they had, um, standard of living, they had price, they had, uh, location, you know, all kinds of shit like that. But I was like, oh, let's go all the way on standard of living, which schools have a five-star standard of living. And I scrolled through and the first one was university of Guam in the Asian South Pacific. And I was like university of Guam. And I looked it up and it was like a fucking resort in Guam. I was like, this is fucking rad, dude. It had like one major. It had botany. I was like, hell yeah, dude, I'm growing pot. So that was the first application I filled out it was, uh, was, was Guam university in the Asian South Pacific dude. And I was like, that's it, but we're all the way Guam, baby. Uh, and then like, so, so my college advisor saw what I had done and he was like, Guam. And I was like, that's, yeah, I'm on my way, dude. What do you mean? I'm out of here. I'm headed to Guam. And he was like, can you apply to another school for me? Can you apply to one more fucking? He was so pissed. He was like, can you, can you, can you take this fucking seriously? And I was like, I am serious, dude. I'm going to Guam, bro. And you know what? Looking back on it, if I had gone to Guam and studied botany, I'd probably be a millionaire right now. I'd probably have my own pot name brand. I'd be churning out doobies left and right. Anyway, 
but so, so I, I, I go, fuck. So I go back to looking at standard of living. There's like one other five-star school. There's two other five-star star schools, Pepperdine in California. And I was like, yeah. I don't really want to go to Pepperdine. And the other one was Elon University in North Carolina. Elon University had a film program. My mom had mentioned she really liked it when she was looking at schools. So I was like, all right, I'll apply to, to Elon. I did early acceptance. I got in. That was it. I applied to, to two school, schools total. Elon and in in, in Guam University in the Asian South Pacific. Okay. So when you were doing classes in Chicago, was that like community college? What was that? No, that was literally just me being out of high school. Like, okay. like, like taking my summer and working in Chicago. I, I, okay. I left, I left, uh, early, uh, I left school a little early and I stayed there a little late and literally just did a, a full summer in Chicago working and, and living on my own. That was, that was just okay. me. You just, Man, yeah. Putting your bootstraps on and getting out there. You mentioned that, um, you kind of struggled to figure out what you want to do because of depression. Yeah. What, what was that period of your life? Uh, uh, I don't know, man. Uh, I think with depression, the, the, my mentality, and I don't know if this is just unique to me or if it's everyone, uh, I always felt too old, right? One of the, one of the overlying principles in my life was that I would compare myself to other people that I thought were successful or, or doing well. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, like this person had already won a gold medal at age 15. I'm, I'm ancient. My bones hurt. I'm 19. It's all over for me. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like if I want to be an actor, Leonardo DiCaprio did eating or uh, what's eating Gilbert grape at age 12. It's over. Uh, and so I think like uh, I was kind of paralyzed by like indecision and the fact that I always felt like I couldn't start something like I had like I had missed the boat. And I think that was like a big part of what caused my depression. And uh, but that was like my trigger. I mean, depression is what it is, right? It, yeah. it, it, it's a it's a it's kind of just a malaise. It, it kind of covers everything. And uh, it's a feeling of inadequacy mixed with depression or mi mixed with boredom, mixed with, mixed with hopelessness. And uh, I always say part of it is you, depression becomes like a sand tiger trap where there's something about depression that is like sickly sweet. Like it becomes addicting uh, because even if you're failing, even if you perceive yourself to be failing, you can still view the world as hopeless, right? Who cares that I'm failing? Nothing matters. And that kind of brings with it like its own satisfaction. Because even if you're not doing well, even if you don't have the things you want, even if you don't have the relationships you want, everyone else is doomed and they're just too stupid to know it. And so you kind of almost get like this, this attitude where everybody who's not depression or depressed is stupid or, or frivolous. And that becomes a big trap. Yeah. So how old were you when you went through this? Was it like your, your younger years? Oh, that was, that was years. That was years. That was like, that was like high school up until yeah. the point where I was like 27, 28. It was yeah. like a, yeah. ten, I, like a that, decade. That's a long time. That's a long yeah, it's decade. Like a, it's like a decade. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not that long ago. I mean, no, you're, you're no, like no, no. 30. Like that's yeah, true. True, so, true. 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 I mean, that. That's, that's not that long ago. So you, you decide that you're going to be an actor when you imagined becoming an actor though, was the imagine like big box office films? Was it, 
Doing yeah, you know, no one imagines themselves as an infomercial actor. I, I, I was not like, I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to be the next Oreo cookie guy. That's my ambition, baby. We're going to go to Hollywood and we're going to do Nabisco commercials. No, I think everybody. I've heard when commercials they start pay about, a ton. That's all. I've heard that commercials actually pay really well. They, so. they, they, they do. But I, I just think that like when, when, when you first envision yourself yeah. as an actor, I, I don't think that anyone envisions themselves doing like infomercials. You know what yeah. I mean? But I, I think what I was very disillusioned about as an actor is a lot of times it doesn't matter how good the actor is, especially early in their career. It's what they look like. It's what they sound like. It's how you can be typecast, right? And I think a big problem for me is I think I was a really, well, this is, this is my own ego, but I think I was a really talented actor. And, you know, I have a body of work that kind of would agree with me, but I, I was just such a generic fucking white dude. Yeah. I was just such a generic white dude. Like the, the only roles you would probably get are like the, the fraternity, bro, like, yeah, 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 that's, that's going to be a hard thing to realize that it doesn't matter how far you go when it's when, when it's it feels like everything's just against you like there's like yeah and you know i i uh, i joined groundlings out here which is the comedy school out here and i've had a lot of success at groundlings i made my way through the entire school now at this point and that's always supposed to lead to something but i mean that's a tremendous amount of time and those those spots at the top are heavily contested. Uh, if anybody knows anything about Groundlings, it's a comedy school, and at any given time, they have I think it's like thirty Groundlings. Flow from Progresso, uh, Progresso, Progressive was a Groundling. Will Ferrell was a Groundling. Um, the the list goes on and on with Groundlings. Basically, like uh, Steve Carell was a Groundling. I'm yeah. no Steve Carell was Second City. Who else was Groundlings? Uh, I can look it up. Um, but a lot of like the best names in comedy at one point were, were groundlings. And right now, uh, you know, I've, I've made my way up and what everybody always tells me is that I'm just like Tony Cavallero. If you've ever seen the righteous gemstones, he was like the, the friend of Adam divines. Um, and everybody always tells me like, you're going to have a really hard time at the top. Cause you're just like Tony Cavallero. You're just like Tony Cavallero. And so, I mean, that, that gets, that gets tough. Like when you, when there's like people in your type, or when you know you're compared to someone else, but I, I mean, I, I I get that. The other one I get all the time is like you're just like Jack Black, and I'm mm. like, oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, but yeah. yeah. Okay, so your goal is still to do film, then, right? Your goal is still to be because mm -hmm. I wasn't sure because of how like streaming and uh, getting this uh, after going through like BuzzFeed and uh, I, dealing I think, with uh, everything. Yeah, I know. So. I, I think if I think if film is still my goal, I think I live with the realization that it won't be on someone else's time. It won't be someone else's film. It'll be my film, right? Like I, I've started writing film and had a lot of success with that. And so I think if if it is meant to be, I will probably have to give myself my first major role. Um, and you know, I have a lot of filmmakers uh, in in my network that I trust yeah. a lot that I've done a lot of work with and for. Um, and, uh, but like uh, the whole idea that I will walk into a casting for some role, nail it, get cast, make my way up the Hollywood ladder. I, I don't have that. I don't have that ambition anymore. What point did that die? That vision, that vision that I can go in and I can do things mm -hmm. and I can get this. At what point did that, that go away? 
Uh, when did that? I think it was over the course of years, man. I think it's just getting beat down. I think it's, uh, I think it's like when you work in the industry and you have a lot of people tell you like, oh, wow, you're really good at this. You know what I mean? Like when you do your bit roles or when you do your small roles and people are like, oh my God, you're so good at this. And then you're like, awesome. How do I pursue that? And they're like, oh, you got to get a manager. Oh, okay. Let me just go do that. And then you realize like that process is such a fucking shit shit slide and like if you're not doing that you got to go on actors access and don't go do college films and like indie films and 90 percent of those are trash and exploitative and and just miserable and like and and then i got my i got a really good manager for writing at wme and i remember having the conversation with them about like hey you know i asked too and they're like don't worry about that i was like (laughs) okay I, I, I see how, I see how it's, it's just brutal, man. I, I the, the acting pro like there's a reason that they warn everybody, right? Like one of my favorite film professors in school, literally one of the last things he said to me was prepare to be poor. And I was like, Oh my God, dude. And he was one of my best professors ever, ever. We call, all called him doom. And he was amazing. I like some of the most important things I've ever learned about film I learned from him, but that was like the last thing he said to me before I graduated was like, prepare to be poor kid. This is, this is a uphill battle. And there's, and you know, it doesn't matter if you're good. You got to be lucky too. God, that's depressing. And like, yeah. So real at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like, I feel like I've just gotten so cynical with life that I just, I hear that. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I guess that makes sense. Like, yeah. Uh, like you, maybe age just makes you more cynical. Cause I feel like that's how I've gotten. I was like, time has gone. I'm just like, you know what? The world is just, it's a shit storm. Listen, and I don't know. Listen, I, I'm not more cynical. I just wish I would have known that the traditional process of getting into film is, is garbage. It's something yeah. they sell people, right? The traditional process of film is something they sell people because there's a cottage industry that profits off of people trying to realize their dreams. All of those self-tape audition places that people hire, like the booths where they can go record their auditions, they profit off of people. The, the predatory managers on the bottom re- like reel that you pay to be your manager, they profit off of people all the housing, all the business, all of the places that get you to act for free, all the commercial, they profit off those people. So this is like, this is like a dream that they sell people. It's like the lottery, right? You're never going to win the lottery. Well, well, you, you could, I suppose, but they need, they need that success story to sell to the millions of people that buy tickets that essentially turn into a state tax, right? Uh, an additional state tax. People don't even know it, right? They're just, that's the same thing with the acting industry in LA. If I had known that, if you are a young person pursuing your acting dream, here's what I would tell you. Do not wait for the industry. Do not have someone else make your project. Make your own shit. Get out there. You have more film technology in your fucking cell phone than Kubrick had on the fucking shining. You know what I mean? You have no excuse at this point. So, so go out there, make your own shit post every day, be, be lean, 
lean startup model. Don't worry about making a perfect film. Make a thousand flawed films that progressively get better. You are going to get to perfection much quicker by releasing a bunch of garbage than you are retooling garbage for years and trying to make it perfect. That's the bottom line. Just keep creating. If you're a creative person, don't wait for someone to buy your shit. Just make your shit as good as possible by making it over and over and over and over again. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. When you were first thinking about moving to LA, what was that trip like? Like that, the did you drive out? Did you fly out? Uh, was it? I, yep. drove, I I lived in LA for one year actually, so I lived sure. there when I uh, worked with an esports team for a while, and it was like that. I was like, oh my god, I'm finally gonna live in LA. The weather's gonna yep. be perfect coming from like Michigan. I avoided like yep. a huge snowstorm, and I was like, fuck yeah, I drove it in <laughs> in two days, which was insane. It's like a 37 yep. hour drive, and I was like, oh, I can't wait to be here. But after I lived there for a while, like. I'm one of those people who's like, eh, LA's nice. The weather is perfect. I will not deny it's, that. It's it's one of the loneliest areas in the world, is what I'll say off the bat. It is a very lonely place. Yeah. Uh, you are sur- you are surrounded by people, and very few of them are human. Um, it, 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 it's it's like it's like a plastic factory. You're living in a meat market, right? So people have become jaded. Everyone's yeah. worried how you're using them. Everyone is like they have their ears up on how they can use you. Uh, to find genuine people in LA is a task. Uh, you get better at it. You get a radar for for like who is just there to to be a genuine human. But so much of the of the town are people trying to make it, and so they are like at they're at an eleven all the time yeah. in, in terms of like their social networking. So it becomes a very lonely place. My move to LA was something like this. I finished my master's degree. I I now had a master's in film. And I was living in Pinehurst, North Carolina with no plan at my parents' place. And Pinehurst has a lovely golf course. And I would go out and play 36 holes of golf every day. And I did this for like two months. I was like, oh, this this is great. I'm just golfing. And all of a sudden, I had this epiphany where I was like, if I don't get out of here now, I'm going to be here for the next 10 years just fucking playing golf and hanging out in Pinehurst. So I literally just packed as much shit as I could fit in my car and drove straight shot. Boom. 35 hours straight to LA. I had a buddy that had an open uh, room. I moved into that room. Um, and that was it. I just started looking for work and living my LA life. So LA is insanely expensive from what I, I from when I yep. lived there. Um, I got very lucky that yep. I didn't have to pay for like any of the things. But I was like, that was one of the reasons why I don't know if I'd ever want to live in LA. It's just too too expensive, and I have no very expensive, to. Um, very expensive. The weather's good. It's not that good. Um, did you ever have that moment of like, oh fuck, what am I gonna do? Uh, like I'm I'm broke as fuck. I'm gonna like mom, dad, help. What do I do? Yeah. Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, especially when you're out there for like acting and film, it feels so, it feels so like masturbatory and, and indulgent to be like pursuing a film career when you don't have like a day-to-day job. And I've worked some jobs I fucking hated. Um, but yeah, you, you just kind of always try and make it work. Of, of course, like I have parents that helped me out from time to time. Thank God. 
Um, but you know, I, I did work a lot of odd jobs too, man. I, I always just did my best to keep the lights on and, um, yeah, man, uh, LA is a, LA is a brutal place to find work because here's the thing. It's like all those odd jobs, all those unusual jobs are being staffed by people in your exact yep. same situation. So I remember I had like a master's degree and I would apply to shit and I wouldn't even get like a tap back. And I'd be like, what the fuck? And I would say to my parents, I'd be like, God, the job market is so competitive. And they'd be like, nah, that's, that's LA, William. You're, you're literally in a place where everyone goes out there jobless, hopeless, but they got to eat regardless. And so you, you can, you know, you can really get in a weird situation when you come to LA. I always tell people if they're going to come out to LA, come with either a lot of slush money or a plan. Because if you come out here without a runway or a plan, you're going to get gobbled up, especially right now. Jesus. I wouldn't come to LA for another two years with the COVID yeah. shit because the film industry is not doing a goddamn thing. Everything shut the fuck down. Those nice places where you can enjoy the temperate weather are all locked up unless you want to go to Huntington Beach and immediately get COVID. Um, it, it's just not a good time for LA. Well, you mentioned COVID. Um, and yeah. this actually uh, brings me to another question for you. Your dad is actually very old. Is that something that you're really scared about? Because that would be something I would be kind of like my dad has diabetes and I'm like, dad, stay the fucking side. Don't go out. Yeah. Okay. I know you like um, to work, but. I, uh, I, I am a little worried just because he also has like a very devil may care attitude always has like, he, he's always like, I'm not going to stop living my life. God damn it. Um, but right now he's on that Island. I talked about Beaver Island population 300. So as long as he's out there in the middle of goddamn nowhere, uh, I feel better about it. But like, yeah, you know, it gives me anxiety, especially because I know he's just not going to stop, right? He's out there playing tennis and riding his bike and, and that's just what it is. Yeah. So you mentioned the terrible people in LA. I would just like to say that it was the weirdest experience for me when I went to LA because in Michigan, where I'm from, like if people break down, like you have yeah. multiple people who will like stop and help you. And I won't lie. I felt like if I ever broke down in LA, people were like, oh, that's 10 points. Let's just clip him. A yeah, little yeah, 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 yeah. So. Uh, it, it's certainly weird because some of the surrounding areas have some of the most genuine people. Joshua Tree, those people are the salt of the earth. Those weird ass desert people are all like artistic and 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 uh holistic and they'll be like hi how are you doing you want to drink some ayahuasca cool they're great san diego is just a bunch of fucking heady ass surfers and like corporate shills who are like i love the fucking bitch dude i work at i work at merrill lynch all day and then i surf all night what's up bitch? so like you're literally surrounded by really really cool areas and then LA is kind of just this total dearth of, of people of yeah. substance, which is, which is brutal. The other thing is like, you're also the wealth inequality in LA is so staggering when you're on the same longitudinal line and you go from like, when you go from like Beverly Hills and in 10 minutes, you're in like Hollywood proper and the yeah. wealth inequality of those two areas, you're just like, what is going on, dude? I literally just drove from Versailles to Compton. Like what the fuck is going on? Um, I think that's also really shocking when you realize like that, like that these areas have isolated themselves so completely. 
They have separate governments. They have separate police forces. They have separate budgets, which shows, and they just hoard wealth. Like Beverly Hills is no joke. It's like Central Park. It's like one long Central Park. And then the surrounding areas have potholes like Cambodia in the, in the highway, dude. So like it's, it's very strange and it it kind of like takes a while to get your head around. So when you moved out there, how long was it before you started to, I think the first job that you did was uh, you were a video producer for reason foundation, right? Yeah. 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 That's, that's true. You're like, Uh, Oh fuck, where the fuck is he been? Yeah. yeah, um, (laughs) No. So uh, I was, I was, I couldn't find a job when I first moved out to LA. I was having a very difficult time and I kind of was in that situation where I was like, Oh fuck, what am I going to do? So I was going through um, vetting, to uh, join the Air Force, actually. And I was in like the very last process of that. I was like a few days away from getting my physical. And wait, going wait, wait. Okay, it. we got to stop. Back up. Why yeah. the fuck were you thinking about joining the Air Force? Like, how the fuck do you go from... Because I wanted I to join the Air I, Force at one point. I don't they rejected fucking me. know, man. I was... Dude, I liked Top Gun. I looked good and white. I, I don't know. That was, that was it. I, like I saw the money that I would make. I was like, Oh wow. $80,000 a year. That's cool. And it was just like air force officers training. I had good test scores at the time. They were looking for someone who had like higher education. So I had this master's degree and I was like, Oh, this seems whatever. And so I was like in the last, I was about to get my physical and then like sign my commitment And the week before that, I went on a trip to visit my aunt. I met a guy in Montana um, named Mr. Dunn. And Mr. Dunn was a a big benefactor at the Reason Foundation. And uh, we started talking. He, he, you know, he was just kind of picking my brain while we played golf. And he was like, would you ever make film for the reason foundation? And I was like, I have no fucking idea for what the reason foundation is in my head. But I was like, yeah, yep. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, literally next week I had an interview with the reason foundation. They gave me a job. It was just enough to pay the rent and feed myself. So I started like my, my, my actual film career making uh, political documentaries that were like freedom focused. So like the impact of legalizing sex work, the impact of legalizing marijuana nationwide, the nation's most potent marijuana strain. Uh, And it's funny because like, I wouldn't consider myself a libertarian at this point anymore, but it kind of gave me an insider track on like the the libertarians that I worked with were all pretty cool people. They were all just like pretty heady people who were like, let everybody get married. Fuck the borders. Fuck cops. Like, and so that shit was really cool. And that's, that's stuff that's like canon now, right? Stuff that I was doing as a libertarian eight years ago, uh, you know, Democrats had no fucking earthly idea that they were going to endorse eight years later. Like we, we were the outlier being like, Hey cab dude, legalized pot. Let's, let's make medical cocaine a thing. And now that's like, now that's like so canon. Right. But I also saw the side of the libertarian party where it's like the meme, right? We would have these get togethers and there would be like kind of the cool insightful libertarians that were working on freedom. And then there would be like the AR 15 libertarians is like what I call them. Yeah. Where they'd come in, where, yeah, where they'd come in and they'd be like, listen, 
I've been living off the grid. I got a basin in my backyard that collects water. I got, I have a, I, I've devised a cage in <laughs> which I, I've trapped. Yeah, I've, tra- I've, I've trapped over 150 squirrels and I've rigged up a device where they power a series of pistons and it provides power for my entire compound. Squirrel power is the future. And you just be like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? And then they'd be like, yeah, you want to you wanna do some fucking toad venom with me right now? And I'd be like, no, we're at a Christmas party, you psycho fuck. What Are you taking psychedelics right now? Yeah, I've taken a bundle of them. I'm off my rocker. I brought my gun. And you're like, oh, my God. And the problem is libertarians have a lot of really good ideas about freedom, but the umbrella for libertarians is so wide that you get like, the minarchists who are people like, yeah, let's, let's legalize sex work. Let's, let's prune down some of this legislation that makes no sense. And then in under that same umbrella, you get like anarcho-capitalists, you get like full-blown anarchists. And those people are a bit wacky, dude. Yeah, I would would agree. So you start, oh my God, that makes it interesting. I was going to say like, you mentioned that you were kind of more libertarian than did, sure. Did did you agree with a lot of the stuff that you were kind of putting out there then? Was there anything no. that you really really didn't agree with that you still had to work on? So, I'm I'm trying to remember the projects that I specifically worked yeah. on. I worked on a water rights one, which was essentially like how the government would seize water rights from people. I still oh. kind of believe in that. I worked oh, on I, the a, Yeah. I, I, work, yeah. I went to a place in uh, South Dakota for one of the tribes because uh, I work in mental health. Exactly, exactly. So that was, <laughs> was what like, we worked on is is how the government was seizing wa- water rights from a lot of native tribes, yeah. which which I, I still agree they shouldn't do that, right? That's, that's still my take. I worked on a, a legalization of sex work piece. I still think this country would benefit, benefit enormously from the legalization of sex work. You know how, how many... Uh, angry incels that would quell if these fucking dudes could just pay for a little handy on the side. I still believe in that. I worked on uh, legalization of marijuana nationwide, obviously. Like at the time, that was a meme, but now it's more of a reality. I worked on a piece about the use of psychedelics uh, in therapy. I still believe in that. They, you know, they think that- They're working on it. ketamine mdma all these different uh type 1 narcotics can basically do a lifetime of of uh healing work in just a few sessions and i'm a huge believer in psilocybin psilocybin really helped me in in my process of healing so i I am kind of a, a a devout believer in that still uh i did a documentary on open source source software which uh i i featured at that time a a fledgling game called League of Legends, uh, which would eventually, so I still believe in that. Yeah, so so most of the stuff I did there, I still believe in. I'm trying to think if there was anything that I did that fundamentally, like, I, well, I, there was a guy named Tim Poole, I think his name was, I can't remember. He had some very interesting ideas about what should happen with the highways. I don't know if I dis- if I agree with that. Okay. He was like, they should all be privately held and we should all pay pay every time we use a road. I don't know if I believe in that, but I didn't work on that. Everything I worked at on Reason, I had, um, I had uh, autonomy. 
Right. Yeah. So I, I, I never worked on anything that I was like, this is dumb. Uh, so I, I, I still kind of support my work there. Other people were doing other shit. I don't agree with every article reasons ever published, yeah. but this, but, but, but specifically the shit I worked on and my film team worked on was, was pretty good. Mm-hmm. So what was it like getting into Buzzfeed then? Cause that's where you went next after, uh, working with reason you went to do to Buzzfeed. What right. was that like? So I, it, it actually wasn't a direct trip. What happened was, um, Reason lost one of its primary benefactors. Uh, uh, this guy, this guy, it was really interesting. He set up a scholarship for, for Reason TV. And he, I can't remember if he died. I think he died. And then his daughter came and challenged it and was like, he wasn't in his right mind when he wrote this scholarship. He was already suffering from dementia. So she had it revoked. So it was something like $2 million, $3 million Jesus annually. Christ. It was a ton of money. It was like, it might've even been more. It was like $5 million annually. The guy had more money than Midas, um, but she, she was like, no. It's so, mine. They, it's all fine. Right. So they had hired based on the, based on those dollar amounts. So I was the youngest person in the company. I was one of the first out. So I was looking for a job from there. I went and worked at a film festival, but it was like, it was it was really not a good time is all I will say there. Um, it was, it was, it just, it was just not a good time. And from there I was applying to Buzzfeed. So I cut, um, a trial video for them of people try smelling salts for the first time. So at that time it was kind of like, you know, that's what they were doing. And I had a video of like my friends ripping smelling salts for the first time. And I put it in slow motion and it was great. It was a great video. So they ended up using that and then they hired me as an intern and I went to BuzzFeed from there. And at the time when I first got to BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed was really exciting, right? Like BuzzFeed kind of felt like it was at the center of the universe because we were doing more video impressions than, than anyone else. So it just felt like it was this collective of like really young, really fun filmmakers who had really wide talent sets because you had to be able to do everything. You had to get on camera, you had to film, you had to edit, you had to set up your lights. And so the number of people that could do everything uh, was kind of small. So it was like a, it was like a, a really cool collective of journeyman film fa- makers. And those early days of BuzzFeed, there was a lot of really cool shit that we made. Yeah, so looking at um, BuzzFeed and getting in there, at what point does this, the, 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 the rose-colored glasses, when do they start to kind of wear away? When do you start to say, what the fuck am I doing here? Not for a while because I was young and I didn't really, like the money thing, I was making no money, right? I was making yeah. nothing really, but, the, but like my social media was blowing up. I would get on camera and the vi- the video would do like 10 million views and people would be like, oh, Will, Will from BuzzFeed, Will's great, Will. And I'd be like, this is what fame is. I'm going all the way to the top on a rocket ship. Um, and, and to be honest, like there are some people from BuzzFeed who made that transition, right? The Try Guys did it. Quinta did it. Uh, Kelsey did it. Um, uh, Safia did it. There are some people who managed to use their BuzzFeed momentum to realize very lucrative careers. I, I just wasn't one of them. But at, you know, at the time, I didn't realize it was, it was expletative and, and, and fucked. 
I was just so focused on succeeding because it was a competitive internship. Yeah. So I don't think I had time to even be like, oh, this is all wrong. I was just, I, you know, 13 hour days, just getting everyone's video. Anyone who wants to use you, do it. Edit around the clock, pump out video as fast as you can. That's insane though. Uh, so were you an intern the entire time that you were at BuzzFeed? No, I was an intern. Then I was a fellow. Then I was a producer. Interesting. Okay. So you, yeah. you make it through all this. Um, yes. Does it, it, towards the end, was that when you started to realize that, oh, fuck this, the, some of the stuff that's happening here? Or was it earlier on? Like, what I'm wondering is like, I imagine that there's a point where you have a conflict in yourself of, I don't agree with what we're doing. Yeah. But I don't have a okay. choice if I want to get so, forward. You asked when I started to realize something was rotten in Denmark. I actually have a very vivid memory of this. Okay. Yeah. So I, when I went into BuzzFeed, th there was, it was competitive internship to move up the ranks, right? Yeah. And up until that point, the, the graduation rate from the internship was actually decent. It was like half of the people that went through the internship would actually get hired at the company. So you Was this you a free internship? No, you got paid, but it was like it was like very minor, no okay. overtime. And that kind of continued. Like when you got hired, you didn't get paid significantly more. You just had the 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 job security in your head that you couldn't be let go at any moment basically. But up until this point, about 50% of the interns were graduating into positions at BuzzFeed, right? Okay. So I vividly remember going into um, this uh, internship graduation mm -hmm. and basically of, I think there were 20 of us, I think like six of us made it and we were kind of like, whoa, that's that's pretty low. That's pretty real. So I remember I was then a fellow and they did the next round of interns, right? The next like crop of interns. And of that crop of interns, very few of them made it. Very few of them made it. And so we would, okay. So I remember when the realization that, that, that shit was fucked up came to me and it was because BuzzFeed had just taken this angel investment. So their, their, their policies all changed. It became much more corporate, yeah. but we still did this thing called, I don't remember, Friday meeting or something. I So the whole, oh, all hands. That's what it was called. So we would all get together in the main building on Friday and they would basically give out these pins, these enamel pins for anyone who had like a, big video um, of uh, like a video that did well that week. So if yeah. you broke like, if you broke like 2 million views or if you had a certain number of shares or blah, 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 you would get one of these enamel pins. Now I don't, I think I threw all mine out, but it was like this pinning ceremony. So they'd be like, blah, 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 come on up, blah, 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 come on up. And usually they do a fair amount of like back padding too, where they'd be like, we have, you know, 6 billion impressions this month, you know, blah, blah, blah. We, you know, we're Buzzfeed baby. Okay. So this Friday in particular, 
they, for some reason, line up the hirings and firings with Friday All Hands. And instead of doing the hirings and firings in person, they do them all via email. And they fire the majority of the intern class. And this one guy at BuzzFeed who was a higher up who would soon, who would later get fired was hammered because they had a margarita machine in the office for, for Friday, all hands celebration or whatever. And he was fucking pissed. And so, uh, you have, you have like, like you can hear people like weeping because they've just been fired and it's a lot of people and they're all there. And he grabs the mic and he's like, what's up with me? You are so lucky to be working here. We're at the center of the universe. We're the biggest media company in the world. As they've just let go, like 20 people. Yeah. And he's like ranting and raving as those people who had just been fired are sitting there listening to this drunk dude rant on and on about how awesome it is to work at BuzzFeed and how lucky we are and blah, blah, blah. And everyone was kind of just like, oh my God, dude. And then it was kind of this realization. I was like, this is kind of a cult. This is a little culty. This is a little weird. Um, And uh, I'll just never forget the juxtaposition of like 20 people sitting at their desks quietly crying to this guy who had just been pumping the margarita machine all day going on this diatribe about like, and we're, the, we're going to take over this and we're going to get a, it's like, and it was just Jesus like, Oh my God. But okay. So that was the first indication that shit was really in trouble. The second indication, uh, the second time I remember stuff was really scuffed was so they would do these videos like people try X, right? Like, yeah, I'm a white guy and I'm trying Ethiopian food for the first time. You know, Puerto Ricans try Korean Kit Kats for the first time. They had a whole fucking series of this thing. So someone came up with the, with the great idea. Oh, you can drink your own piss. Let's have people drink their own urine for the first time. Let's oh. make... Let's make that fucking brilliant video. And I think it's still online. I think you can go watch it. But like, I remember thinking like, no one's going to do that. Like I was kind of the Steve-O of Buzzfeed. I would do just about anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because like that's, that's just kind of my attitude in life. Like, oh yeah, I'll fucking do it. But even that one, I was like, I'm not going to drink my own piss on camera. Are you fucking insane? But anyway, the video gets approved by the higher ups at BuzzFeed. Sure, it's a great video. Bear Grylls did it, right? Bear Grylls drank his piss. Let's have people drink piss. So they, they staff it. They have BuzzFeeders who are willing to do it. The BuzzFeeders drink their own piss. I think someone oh. just linked it already. They, 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 they film this video, they edit it, and they release it. And it's performing well. And then someone has an epiphany. Wait a minute. Every single person in this video is an intern. There's not one full employee in this video. All of of these people in this video that just drank their own piss are in a competitive internship. So BuzzFeed 
just unbeknowingly forced interns in a competitive internship to drink their own piss for a shot at being hired at the company. Holy fuck. That sounds like a lawsuit if I've ever heard one. Dude, the, the email thread that went around behind closed doors was like, and I just remember like, I don't think I was on that thread. I think someone else leaked it to me. I think one of my friends that were like corporate leaked it to me because we didn't have an HR. The yeah. HR was like a joke. And I think someone leaked it. I think I remember who leaked it to me. And I remember the two of us were just like, oh my God, this is so bad, dude. This is so bad. They just had interns drink piss on camera. It's on the internet forever. And it, that was like another epiphany to me. I was like, this is, this ain't right, dude. This ain't, this is no good. So how do you fight through that to keep working there? Because I know a lot of people have to do it. And a lot of times we say, oh, well, you should just, like, I feel like I hear this a lot. Well, people should just stand up for themselves. But there's other motivations that people have that tend yeah. to take take control. And I don't think people give the, like, I don't think we give people a lot of times a fair, actual, honest thing of like, you know yeah. what? I understand why you didn't do it. I wish you would have. But at some point, you have to be like, like it is like the self versus I want to give up myself versus others. And I feel like yeah, at BuzzFeed, I think, you were probably, like, I feel like a lot of people are probably in that situation in I, Hollywood in general. I think the problem is like you get shower thoughts mind, you get tunnel vision, right? Because yeah. especially at that time, you see other creators getting the six figure contracts, yeah. getting, getting the exposure, getting their own shows, getting deals to do shows with Buzzfeed. Like they had just done the Violet series with, with those uh, girls. They, they were building out Try Guys. They were doing a show called Broke with Quinta. So I think, again, like in the same way that um, Hollywood markets the dream of yeah. being successful, BuzzFeed was marketing that dream to its employees, right? We're like, if you became unsolved, all these, if you became popular enough, you could get your own intellectual property. You could get the six-figure contract. You could live the dream and you wouldn't be a cog in the machine. So I think you get that tunnel vision of just like, I got to push through this phase so I can get to that phase. And, and, and like the idea of failures is far from your head, right? Like you're just like, I got to commit to this. I got to, I got to make it. And, and at least that's, that's where I was. And at the time, like, dude, I, you know, I had all these impressions. I was showing up in everybody's video. My videos were performing really well on Facebook. Um, so in my mind, I was like, of course I'll be BuzzFeed's next like forward facing talent. I got it all going on. Well, boy, was I wrong, you know, and what a dummy I was. But at the time you just don't, you just don't think of it. Yeah. I think this is true for a lot of things too, though. Like, I feel like, like the American dream in itself is almost that idea. Oh, if you push hard enough, you can become successful. Like literally our country sells the idea that you just need to work hard and focus on yourself and work hard and you, yeah. you'll become successful. So I, I well, like- also, this mentality that you're supposed to like to suffer in, in, yeah. uh, during the journey, right? Basically, we have this mentality that life is all about the destination. 
Life is all about where you end up. Fuck the in-between, right? No. If you're if you're grinding a, a, a 5 a.m. Till, till 10 p.m. and you don't sleep and you crank coffee and you're unhealthy, as long as you get wealthy in the process, who cares that that entire section of your life was just miserable suffering? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. It makes me very upset. I just feel like a lot of times people are too hard on other people when oh, yeah. like like even like some like there's a lot of people who I do not agree with their opinions at all and I'm like but why do they have those opinions? You know, I feel like a yeah. lot of times we don't ask well, that. Well, the other question. thing is you know what we call people that live their lives? We call them lazy. Yeah. Yeah, we do. And some sometimes that's true. But sometimes people just don't want the same shit you yeah. want. They don't want a house. They don't want a nine to five. They don't want a picket fence. They want to just go experience things on a day to day. They want to enjoy every sandwich. And and, and, some, and somewhere in the American mentality, that is so, that's, that's blasphemous, right? Oh, you didn't grind your way through your youth? Fuck you. Yeah. Yeah, but so many awful. of the people we aspire to were given shit. So many of the people we aspire to are the product of nepotism, or they 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 know that they're going to go to a fucking Ivy League school from the age that they're ten on because their dad went there and they have a building there. Like the, the, those fates are spelled out. So like for every person that grinds their ass off and, and changes their fate. There's 10 people that were given that. So one of the things at least I kind of know you for, I guess, would be being willing to be outspoken and talk about things that matter to you. Sure. Um, and this includes like politics, things that are going on in society. Like, I feel like you're willing to talk about any of these things. Have you always been someone who is willing to be out there and talk about it? Or is that something that you kind of grew into? Yeah, I mean, I think I've always been willing to be out there and talk about it. I think part of my willingness is that anytime I have one of those like political conversations or, or, or insightful conversations, I always admit at the at the like the, the the beginning of the conversation, I'm no one with a better opinion than anyone has. I'm just some idiot on the internet. I'll give you my best take, but my best take is not the take of an expert. It's yeah. the take of a guy who has pretty good empathy and, and a decent grip on at least what he believes. By the way, one second, hold on. I got to thank the Central Committee. I think I was just raided. Central Committee, thank you so much for the raid. Mike, I love you, bud. Let's play some video games sometime. Much love to you. Hope all is well, my friend. Ah, there he is. What's up, Mike? I'm just doing a little interview right now. Uh, hang out if you'd like. Please, um, uh, if you don't already follow Mike in my chat, go check out the Central Committee. Uh, would one of my mods please link that? Boom. Perfect. Efficiency. Nice. Good. Good. I like that. Um, so, yeah, uh, as I was saying, being outspoken and uh, being willing to come out there, you were kind of talking on about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. That's always just kind of been my personality. I, I, I don't think that it's something that everyone needs to be outspoken. It's there's a lot of energy that goes into justifying your your thoughts and feelings all the time. Yeah. It's it's just always who I have been. Uh so yeah. I've I've always said that kind of an influencers are like I would say anyone I, I'm gonna use influencer for the sake of the word. Um it, their job isn't necessarily to be outspoken about things, but it's to not do harm. 
right? Like, yeah. I feel like that's the bare minimum line. And I feel like a lot of people crowd. Everyone people. fails that then. Everyone fails that then. There are so many influencers that fail that. Like, I mean, that's if the I line think we it, should try for though. I don't think the line should be be outspoken though. Like you should have to outspeak about everything. I think the line should be, hey, just don't say anything that's really fucking terrible, right? Like, don't, yeah. which. Yeah, and it's, I don't know, man. I feel like so many people who fall under that term, like traditional term of influencer, especially at the highest levels, they appeal to such a low common denominator that almost that in itself is damaging, right? Like the the Boonk gangs of the world, the 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 Jake Pauls of the world, like the 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 things that they encourage in their audience are so oh yeah troglodytic that it's I like I can't watch you, Jake Paul videos. I watch him only because yeah. his marketing is like literally fucking insane. Like his ability oh, to yeah. market is fucking Dude, his, insane. His, his, S, his SEO is just, it's you type oh. in Jake and it's, it's over. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, no, truly. I think like, I think like just in general, like that appeal to the lowest common denominator and that just like complete disregard for any kind of like high mind thought leads to the atrophy of their audiences, right? Especially when those audience look at those people and they're so successful. They're so successful that their audience is like, this is the behavior of a successful person. Wrong, wrong, wrong. But there are so many young people who are like, fuck being professional or insightful or or composed at all. I'm going to ride dirt bikes and I like, you know, and I'm going to be fucking, I'm going to be the next big star. And, and that's just, that's tough, man. That's, that's a tough mentality to have. I think that's when you have a complete atrophy of, of youth audiences, because instead of aspiring to be, you know, some great mind, they aspire to just be the lowest common denominator and be cool. I think yeah. the aspiration to be cool is one of the most detrimental things that a young person can have. Don't aspire to be cool. Being cool is is bullshit. It, it, that's an industry. That's something they sell you. Being cool is being cool is some some marketing execs fucking project in a closet. Aspire to be worldly and smart and empathetic, and and the rest will follow. Yeah, I I agree with that. Have you ever thought? I mean, I I think that you're probably one of you're like I think you're really smart enough. Uh, like like just like. Knowing you, I, I'm not like too. I just, the way that you talk and can hold yourself, you're also very charismatic, which helps. Um, Thank that, you. That being said, um, have you ever thought about being like? I, I imagine you have to understand after working for BuzzFeed and seeing all these things, you have to understand how marketing works to a degree. Have you ever thought about lowering your own morals in order to get something that just does really well? Because I feel like you could do that. Like I feel like you must know like at least what would do really well on YouTube if you wanted to. Like, okay, I don't think so you're the- I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to in, indicate anybody in this story, but I was offered a, a, essentially a ghostwriting position for a very prominent conservative figure. And it probably would have meant a lot of money. Uh, and it, and it was at a time where I was really struggling for answers. Um, and I turned it down because I, I morally couldn't make it work. Really? 
That's yeah. impressive. That's impressive. To don't know. Don't, don't be impressed by it because there was a lot of time that I was considering. Okay, I was kind of like, like, I feel like with how cynical I am, as long, like, I don't know. Like if I think about that now, if someone offered me a lot of money, like I don't, like I've done, like I've owned my own business and stuff like that. And the business yeah. world is just, they don't care about your feelings. Like it right. does not matter. And if you go into business caring about feelings, a lot of times it doesn't work. But, well, I mean, and, and, and the bottom line is this, man. The bottom line is this. Money fucking talks. Oh, yeah. When you have it, when you have money, it's easy to be moral. Yeah. It's easy to be like, oh, yeah, you know, fucking just don't do those bad things. When you don't have money, when you're doing the math of how to fucking live, of how to make your living situation viable, of how to put food in your mouth, of how to stave off the depression of feeling like a abject failure, you're willing to do some shit. And until you've been in that position, you can't judge those people. And the thing was, I, like, I wasn't physically hungry, but I was hungry. Yeah. And it, I was hungry enough that I considered that option. And that's why a lot of times I will give people the benefit of the doubt and at least be like, listen, you might be doing this for, for the reason of X, Y, and Z reasons. And I get that. And, and, and as I said, like my IQ is not an IQ. It's not a base IQ, right? I'm not a, a smart person in my bones. There are a lot of people that come out the shoot and they're smart. My IQ has come from firsthand experience. Yeah. I'm the touch the stove kid, right? And I've touched the stove hundreds of times and it's given me an IQ based in pain. And because I have an IQ based in pain, I was given the gift of empathy. And I think empathy is something that we lack so, so ubiquitously in the United States right now. If more people could become empathetic, I think a lot of problems that we're facing in terms of just the divide and the inability to understand one another would just evaporate. But people are so, so callous, Um, especially wealthy people. It sucks. And the reason that wealthy people are so callous is because they never learned those lessons based in pain. Because they were so insulated from suffering, they never got that eightfold Buddhist path of going out and seeing the suffering of the world and being like, oh, this is the anatomy of the planet. You have to go out and touch and feel the suffering of the world in order to understand the building blocks and the fundamental truths on which reality is formed. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I I used to always say that I think that the thing that people lack is the ability to listen, which it kind of ties in with empathy, because I feel like too many people are worried about getting their point across and being right than actually listening and trying to figure out where are these people coming from? Like, why Mm. do they have these opinions? Okay, because if you can figure out that, maybe you can find some sort of ground to actually work with these people. Yeah. So... And I, I think that that inability to listen is, is somewhat based in the fact that we live in, you know, I'm ADHD, but we live in an ADHD generation yeah. where like sound bites are five seconds. You, you know, you have, you have three seconds to win me over. We throw fits if we have to watch a 15 second ad at the beginning of our video, right? So like, so anything that, that breaks that immediate feedback loop of gratification puts us off. And so I think that is detrimental to our ability to listen. 
Yeah, I agree with that. So I want to jump back to the acting a little bit. You mentioned improv and doing a lot of improv. Do you think sure. that everyone should do improv? Because I actually recently, actually, I recently name changed um, into improv, Blake, because I, I want to get more into it. And I, I yeah. actually started like an improv show um, that I do in like my channel sometimes. Um, Everybody go check out improv Blake's channel. My mods, please link it, by the okay. way. You don't, you don't have to link it, but it's okay. I appreciate it. Please um, link it, link it, link it. Don't listen okay. to him. This is my channel. Don't listen to him. <laughs> link his channel, uh, um, but continue. Um, anyway, so like improv is something that I've really gotten into and I would really like to do more. Do you think that more people should be looking to do improv, especially on like Twitch? I, I think that improv, not everyone should be looking to do it, but it certainly could benefit everyone. I yeah. think the skills that you accrue while doing improv benefit you in so many places in your life. That ability to untether your mind, be present, get over the fear of being the target of something like, right. Yeah. Like that, like walking into an interview, you're going to get butterflies in your basket. If you've done improv where you've had to pr pretend to be a, a, a mermaid who's ad addicted to smack, it makes talking about your weaknesses and strengths a lot easier, right? When you get over that embarrassment of being, of, of having focus on you, it can benefit you in so many places in your life. And guys, let me tell you, up and down, anyone, if you can get up and command an audience for a period of time, that is so sexy. I'm telling you, at weddings, at graduations, wherever, if you can stand up and be like, this one goes out to Billy. We all knew he'd fucking, when he, you know, got in trouble for sniffing glue, we were worried, but we all had faith. If you can just command that moment, people love that. And there are times in your life where you need to do that. So listen, should everybody do improv? Maybe not. Could everybody benefit from it? Yeah. Certainly. Okay. That's, that's kind of what I meant from it. Uh, that leads me to another question. Have you ever sure. played Dungeons and Dragons? Absolutely. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons is one of the first things that I actually did on Twitch. I was a, a dwarf bard called Flim Flam. Nice. And nice. I, I, had a, I had a great time doing that. I love Dungeons and Dragons. I think Dungeons and Dragons is like an imagine, imagination massage. Um, you, it, it's great because it's like mental alchemy. You get out of it what you put into it. But yeah. the more nerdy you get, the more involved you get, the more you commit the the more that Dungeons and Dragons just gives back to you. Yeah, that's actually why I started to get into kind of improv is I started watching. So I've been playing D&D since I was six, which is a very right. long time. Um, but then yeah. I like saw Critical Role and I'd never seen people do like that level of acting. I was like, holy fuck. I didn't even know this yeah. was possible with D&D because that's yeah. not how I think most people play D&D, to be honest. Like that no. is a very extreme. And I was like, I yes. want more of that though. That would be fun. It doesn't have to be as good as that, but I want yeah. something like that. And so I started like doing accents and learning accents because of that. It takes it to a whole new level, man. I know. It takes it to a whole new level of fun. When you're always yes ending your character in D&D &D, and you always make the decision they would make, it's, it's so, it, it just is so entertaining and, yeah. and gratifying. Yeah. And that's, that's actually what got me into like GTA RP and stuff like that. So I was just wondering, yeah. cause like you seem like someone who would do amazingly well at D and D and I'm surprised, like, do you play actively or do you not really get a chance to? 
You know, I, I try to, I, I have a DM uh, called Big Lundy, uh, Big Lundy, who's who's tremendous, like one of the best DMs. Um, I did a campaign with him and then essentially what happened is people kept falling off. That's kept annoying. Losing. It's really annoying. We, we started with a group of people and we, it kept tapering off and we kept getting new characters and it just didn't, it didn't feel the same way. Yeah. In that one, I was playing a, a, a tifling uh, gunslinger called Doc, who was essentially Doc Holiday from Tombstone, mm-hmm. which was, you know, I'm your Huckleberry. It was just a lot of fun. But um, yeah, I, I've always said if we could get another good group together, I would do it. I certainly, once uh, COVID is over, look forward to going to like my local game store with XVX Colin. I've always told Colin we'd go and do some, some fucking silly, nerdy role play uh, and play a tabletop game. Um, but yeah, and then GTA RP, uh, I actually am working with, uh, I'm working with a guy who's starting a new server just opened up last night called kingdom RP. And basically what you were saying, the queue with no pixel is so insane. And I <laughs> wanted people to be able to play. So this is a free open server uh, that people can join. I'm going to be doing that with, I think Nessua is going to do it. Margo's going to do it. I'm going to try and get Austin to do it. So it's kind of going to be a new place, but I'm really excited to be playing my K-Kona cop. Hey, hey, do you know how fast you were going? That's great. Sir, do you know that you're driving around black after hours right now? Yeah. And just, and just kind of play a piece of shit cop on, on GTA RP. And uh, so I'm really excited about that. Um, yeah. And I, I hope I see you on there. I actually now that I know, if you send me the stuff afterwards, uh, yeah. especially when I can't get it in no pixel, I would love. Yeah, yeah. To. So, because I'm, um, like, uh, I I know a bunch of people who would be. Um, I have an Irish uh, something that uh, is just waiting Ooh. to be to, to come out. I know a Wait, new character. I'm ready. It's a, it's, a, it's a pleasure to meet you there, Will Neff, and I'm hoping to get in <laughs> on the, the GTRP and having a lot of fun there. <laughs> this is what I need. So, this is what this I is what know. we need. I know, right? So, um, but yeah, that's amazing. So, coming into Twitch, what was it like getting into Twitch? Because obviously, you're working on this uh, this Hollywood uh, like grind. When was the point where you're like, oh, Twitch? Let's just start doing this. Um, to be honest, I, I have to give full credit to Azan on this one. Um, I was basically still at TYT with him. I had just left TYT, maybe. Uh, and he was just starting to realize some success on Twitch. And he basically sat me down one day and was like, you should do this. Yeah. And I was like, ah, I don't know. And he was like, no, dude, you're, you're so perfect for this. Like you would, you would absolutely kill it. Ah! And he literally made me go on and, and buy a, a gaming PC on Amazon, like a piece of shit gaming PC. And he was just like, you're doing this. And I was like, okay. And uh, so truly like the reason why I'm on this platform is Hank, you can clip that and ship that. There's, there's no ambiguity about it. I was forced to do Twitch by my best friend and, and I thank him every day for it. Okay. So getting into Twitch, was this almost like the, the relief of, I don't have to do the Hollywood grind anymore. Like there's another out, outlet that is, uh, I, I have my own was- autonomy. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a really nice outlet. I think the thing that was super satisfying to me about um, Twitch was the community, right? Mm-hmm. Like that feedback loop of creating stuff with people. And you know, I've gotten to the point now where like some of the stuff that we make, like last night, uh, uh, one of my good friends and an amazing musical producer, just this insane musical mind. 
I hit him up and I was like, dude, I need to hear your flip of the Putin walk. And then we had people from the community add uh, voice samples to it. And then the whole time we had my community making the musk ox incident sample or uh, memes, which doesn't make any sense, but just, it was just like this meme factory. And it just felt like the hands across America uh, of creating jokes. And, and there's something so satisfying about that beyond just being a solo entity out there making stuff for people to consume in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have another question with Twitch, which is a very interesting thing because while it's so community driven, it can also feel so alone. Like, because a lot yeah. of times you're doing stuff for yourself. Sure. H- how do you deal with that? Because I found that actually, like, now that I've started working with other people, like, it's so much better. Like, actually, like, talking with other people and, like, trying to gauge them as a, like, like I and I'm no, I'm no one big in Twitch either, right? But it's still nice to, like, when you do a project with someone else, it feels like you're not alone. Yeah. So, like, how do you deal with, uh, like, doing things on Twitch and that feeling of loneliness that kind of, I think, hits almost everyone? I mean, that's really tough right now because I think we're going through a global era yeah. of loneliness. Um, so, to avoid loneliness in the age of COVID is, like, trying to jump in the water and not get wet. Yeah. Um, but uh, on a... On Twitch, I think what you mentioned is like working with people, being proactive about reaching out. Because if you're a person who's just streaming to your webcam day in and day out, and you're not collabing and you're not getting out of your comfort zone and you're not interacting with your community, it's so isolating. You're just a person in your room with a webcam. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and there's no way not to feel lonely uh, doing mm-hmm. that. So so I think you you have to strive uh, to, to incorporate elements of, of collaboration within your product or else you will end up lonely. Yeah. Yeah. I I like that. I like that. So Mm -hmm. it's, it gives some, I I always worry with COVID. Like I'm like terrified of like everything that is going to happen in like the next two years, like between like Mm -hmm. mental health and like depression and, uh, suicide and then like job stuff. Like I am like so terrified of what's going to happen. And I see these people on Twitch and I'm like, oh God, I hope that like when bad things happen, you reach out to someone, please, for the love of God, anyone just yeah. please reach out. Yeah. So, I mean, that's so, so interestingly enough, like that's one thing that's always been my watchword, especially for my community. And a lot of people in my community will, will probably vouch for this is like right from the beginning, I said like, I don't care how long it takes me. It might take me a while to get back if I'm overwhelmed, but like anyone who reaches out to me, I will, I will talk to you. So I've talked to like, at this point, hundreds of people in my discord through messages. Like if you're going through a weird time, if you're having anxiety, I'm not a professional. I'm not someone who's always going to have the best take, but sometimes you just need someone be there and I do my best to make myself available to those members of my community. And, and I've always made time for that. I probably spend over an hour, two hours every day, just responding to people and, and, and catching up with people and making sure that they do have at least an outlet in me. Yeah. I, I know that's something I've always said. That's one of the reasons why my DMS are almost always open is cause I actually, I used to own a counseling firm and I used to work in mental health. Um, and I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm not a therapist, but if you want to reach out, I can help push you in the direction of like resources that you might want to look at. So that's yeah. something that I've always uh, thought too. Do you ever worry that you're going to get too big to be able to do that? Cause that's something that I'm like actually terrified of. Like there, it comes a point where you actually can get too big. I think to do that. 
Yeah, I, I, I think certainly that might become a day. I, I don't worry about it too much because here's the thing. I have curated my community in a way that even if I'm not available, the arch, the arch villains are available. Yeah. So as we grow, there are more people that consider themselves arch villains and they are people that are tremendous. And so like even outside of my stream, there are people that have like, you know, self-branded, like Matt Stupid Art, Ico, like these people are, they're, they're in the arch villain universe and like they do a tremendous job. They're tremendously yeah. talented and, and like we build each other up. And that's like one thing that I, I'm so proud of is when people do find my community, that's something they always say is like, this is so different than a lot of the other 1K Andy, 2K Andy yeah. streams because it's not a bunch of, uh, of trash and trolling. It's yeah. just people having a good time that love each other. And yeah. here's the thing. I think there's a way that you can do that in like a Tony Robbins, creepy cult, like bullshit way where it's like fake enthusiasm. Like everything's great. Yeah. You're going to do fine. But we're always very honest. So I think the positivity in this community doesn't come off as like some weird brainwashy yeah. type bullshit because I'm always very honest, right? If someone asked me a question, I might hit you with a, you're fucked, uh, but here's why you should feel good about being fucked. Um, and I think because we've maintained that like genuine yeah. uh, uh, feel, uh, like the, the collaborative nature of it, it's just a good place to be around. So even if I'm not available, uh, uh, people that are, are, are like-minded will be available. And, yeah. and again, we'll worry about the problem of me not being able to get to people when, when we get too big. And then I, I might, so the other thing I used to do, uh, and I still try and do from time to time is office hours where after a stream, I'll just jump on my discord and talk to people. If you want to come ask me a question, if you want access to me, uh, I'll just hang out my discord for a while. So that was like another way that I, I tried to combat kind of me not being around enough. Oh, that's really good. That's really good. Um, with, COVID happening and sure. the issue with the music industry. Where do you think that that's going to go? Is that something that you're ever like worried about? Like, oh, fuck, this is this is going to be really, really bad for a lot of people or for, for me or for music or for film or for entertainment in general, uh, whichever ones you're involved in. Uh, yeah, man, um, it is going to be bad. I mean, it's going to be bad, uh, certainly for people at those highest level of productions, right? With COVID uh, reality, we're probably not going to see another Avengers movie for years because yeah. the logistics of going to a location with hundreds of people and, and filming and blah, 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 uh, it, it's logistically brutal, right? Um, and so you might see a lot more like green screen films. You might see practical go out the window because it's going to be easier to isolate and film in a vacuum. And, and I really hate green screen films. Uh, but the, the thing is, there's such a demand for content that the spice must flow. So, I mean, no matter what, it's going to find a way to get made. Music, I feel really bad for my friends in music. Um, all my friends who are music teachers, there's just... There's nothing. Oh, yeah. There's there's no music education going on. All my friends who are performers, the the live concert element of of music it has also evaporated. And films, that's one thing. Going and watching a movie, 
on your, on your TV, that's one thing, but going to Coachella and being around thousands of people, I have no idea when that's feasible again, even after the vaccination becomes a thing, even after the cases, God willing, go down, even after life returns to normal, is it still feasible to, to go to a remote area where, where thousands of people from walks of life all around the world are commuting to and potentially infecting everyone? Is that feasible? I don't know. And so that element of the billions of dollars that were generated by Gold Voice and, and the industries set up around that, it's going to be a very different time. Live musical performance, that's going to be a very different animal for a while. I just had this vision of this like post-apocalyptic, like we started out not being able to travel anywhere because we didn't have the means to. And now we've just like destroyed the world to the point where we can't actually travel anywhere because we can't be around people because it could just be literally like mass-induced deaths possibly. Like what a fucking, oh... Yeah, I, I think I think what I what I always mention on that, and this is hey, this is the example of you're fucked, but it's positive mentality. Yeah. Is like a lot of people are are rallying for you know erase 2020, knock it off the record books. It's the worst. It's the worst year in memory. But I think what you have to focus on is that by by nature of it being the most painful year, it might end up being the most important year. That's true because we've had so many people telling us that as a global populace, we are facing existential crises in record number. And none of those are real to us. Well, COVID certainly made it real, right? For the first time, we faced an existential crisis, and it wasn't something we just walked through. It's something that we had to fucking deal with. And so hopefully this is a wake up call. It doesn't seem like it has been, I don't, but hopefully I don't it it's a wake up call to at least enough people that we start taking some of these other uh, existential crisis a little more seriously. I, my cynical side is like, this isn't bad enough yet for people to get to that point. As, like yeah. based on what I've already seen, I'm like, it sucks that this isn't bad enough because it should be. But my cynical part is like, wow, this still isn't good enough. Like, What's next, Mother Nature? Because where does the line have to be where people are like, oh, fuck, maybe maybe we should actually do... Like, that line just Amen. scares me so bad. Wait till, wait till all these people can't go home for Christmas or party on New Year's. Oh, yeah. It might get way more real. <sighs> yeah. Well, believe it or not, that's all the questions I have for you. Uh, Tremendous. That, this, is, this is perfect timing. I have I have a call with uh, with uh, my writing team at, at at three o'clock. So this is I mean ideal, perfect. Oh, good, good. So everyone out there, this is Will Neff. Uh, this has been the interview with Will Neff. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Oh, I do, I lied. I have one question. It's quick though. It's quick. Uh, if you Hit could me. see anyone to be on this show, who would you like to see on? And I will try to get them. I'm not guaranteeing it because my connect my my limited reach here, but I will try. Uh, you know who? Oh, sorry, I was just I was just gifted a, tr- a tremendous amount of subs. Hang on, one second, Speed Racer. I, I I'm gonna thank you right after I get done with this. I'm just trying to uh, the guy who I think who has had a really interesting career. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Nessua, but Nessua is a really interesting guy because he is probably the most talented video game 
athlete player I've ever known in my life. And for whatever reason, his experience with esports has kind of been one of just perpetual suffering. So he's a really interesting guy, an example of like someone with all the talent in the world who for, for reasons completely out of his control, just couldn't rise to the top of his industry. So I, I think he is one of the most interesting people. Not only that, he's, he's now having this just resurgence on, on Twitch. And I think he's a guy who could go right to the top of the platform. So uh, just an interesting guy to talk to and just a freak of nature playing video games. I mean, he's, he's insane. So, yeah. Nice. Okay. I like that. That's good. I can also talk to him about esports because I've been in there and it's awful. Exactly. That's <laughs> there. There you go. There's the, there's the bridge. So, everyone out there, this has been the Minds of Media. Thank you so much, Will Neff.